The UDR cast is not affiliated and does not represent any 12-step fellowship. I, Bill Ward, the host of the UDR cast, will be sharing my experience and my journey of recovery. That does include, but is not limited to, the literature contained in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. Our guests will be sharing their own path to recovery and what has worked for them. The UDR cast encourages and supports all paths to recovery. Welcome everybody to the UDR cast. UDR stands for Uncover, Discover and Recover. My name is Bill Ward and I'm coming to you from the recovery capital of Canada, Calgary, Alberta. Here we are going to discuss everything recovery, different perspectives, different experiences, both with the people I know and with others from around the world. If you resonate with anything you've heard on this episode today, we ask that you share it with anyone who you think may benefit from it. If you have any questions or comments, please find us at billward.life and send us a message in the info section. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. If you are interested in more recovery content, you can find the buttons for the YouTube channel and other social media outlets on the homepage, and you will be redirected to those platforms. We can recover. One person, one family, one community at a time. Okay, here we go again, Jimmy. Good to have you back on the UDR cast. Uh, So this is my buddy Jimmy who lives way down in Texas. And uh, we tried to do this a couple months ago, but I had some audio trouble. So we're here back again trying to do it again. And, uh, you know, over that time, we've gotten to know each other a little bit better. So, Jimmy, I just want to welcome you back to the the show. And thank you for joining us here. Thank you. Right on. So, uh, Jimmy and I were just chatting about, uh, you know, sometimes I, I wish we had the camera or the recorders on when we're yeah. just shooting the shit, right? And we can always get into some good chats while we're just kind of getting warmed up and ready. And, you know, for that seven or eight minutes we were chatting, I just really wish I had it going on. But but that's the way it goes, you know. So, so Jimmy, you got about five years sober. I met you on Facebook. I signed up to your group. Um, I did some posting. And what I noticed about signing up to your group was you're very active. You're always commenting. You're always welcoming people. You're always like, it's almost like you're the center hub of that Facebook group. And it's a fairly big group. You know, I think it's about 4,500 people. And uh, tell me a little bit about why you why you have the group, how'd you get the group and and what it does for you before we get going. Um, I joined that group probably in about two years ago. It was a friend of mine from Africa who had it and him and his friend, Sanat were running it together. And I guess it was just, I've become a moderator on there and then they asked me to become an administrator and I've always loved, uh, recovery group since i since i sobered up the recovery groups was a tool that i used in the very beginning and i still use to this day uh he um he stepped away from it and last year 
right before Thanksgiving, Sinet asked me if I if I would want to take it over, and and uh, I jumped at it. I jumped at the opportunity. The first time I talked to Andre years ago, whenever I first signed up, I told him it was like my goal to eventually get a recovery group. I wanted one of my own, and I think maybe he kept that in the back of his head the whole time. And when it come time for him to step away from it, he offered it to me and I've been running with it since, you know, I've, I've, I've switched it up a little bit. I've added some administrators and moderators, but the base of it, uh, Cindy and Jamie, um, Matt, uh, Shannon, they were the base of it. They were there with me before me. So it's, it's our group, you know, and I added some, I added some friends and, uh, We've just we just run with it, and it's it's been a success. Have you met the other moderators and uh, integral parts of the Facebook group group, like the people that you're talking about? Do you, have you met not them all yet. in person? And I say not yet because that's that's a goal no, of mine man. is to eventually make it to to Arizona, to Tennessee, down to Houston, and up to Nebraska, Kansas. Uh, they're pretty much in those states, and that, that is my goal, and I am going to, to meet all of them. And why did you jump at joining that group or taking the group over? Why did you jump at it? Like, what in you was like, yes, I um, would love to do this? I used to be on other groups. I was like in four or five, and I'd post on them, and I started posting on Come As, Come As You Are Recovery. It was, at first, it was titled addict of a diary diary of an addict is what he come up with and sanat she reached out to me on messenger and asked me if i wanted to become an administrator and i always wanted to do that so i jumped at it and that's really how how it started was just being invited and then like i say early on i got Mm. in a conversation with andre which it was he's the one that that started it. it was his group and uh he was from there. They're from South Africa. And um, we started texting each other and it just went it just went from there. We have a we have a chat set up just for the administrator and moderators. And we have another chat that's set up to like I would consider it more like a like a meeting, a place where if you want to more personal, it's more of a personal room. And we'll go on there and we'll chat with visitors it's it's been several months since since we've had it open it's still there but we just haven't been using and i'm assuming you must get a lot of like fulfillment and value from from running that group and seeing people recover and oh yeah yeah it's yeah. uh like i say it, it's part of it's part of my recovery um for me personally i've changed up a little bit on on how how i run my part you know things that i post uh I've opened up a little bit more where we're, uh, we all run it together, but we've all, we're all grown up. So we just let, for me, I just let God lead me on what I need to say or what me personally, what I need to post. I try to post, uh, mostly about alcohol cause that's, that was my demon. Um, when it comes to other things, you know, we all have our, our, our purpose in on it. So they post what, what they're going to post. Mm. 
Awesome, awesome. So that is just naturally, organically grown out of you to be of service to your fellow human beings, and this is yes. one way you can do that. Eh? Uh, not not to brag or boast, right. but it's it's always been part of me. You know, uh, God's mm. always had it in me. It just addiction kind of tainted it. it. It puts that block. Right. And so, so that kind of leads me into the next question. So you're you're basically a twelve stepper, right? You got clean and sober through the the twelve step yes, fellowship program. Yeah, I. Uh... So let's take us back to you know, let's take us back to kind of the beginning, you know how how you were brought up, and let's kind of walk through your your early years, and let's see how you got you know, tagged and hooked into alcohol and like what maybe were some of the underlying reasons why you needed to, to seek some type of relief. And so let's go back to your younger years and kind of explain how you grew up and how you started taking your first drinks. Um, my younger years first, I, I mean, I come from a beautiful family. Uh, I have two older, I have two older brothers, five older sisters, uh, a mom and dad who are always, always there for me. Um, they they put me in Catholic school like when I was in third grade and I learned I learned a lot about about God through Catholicism. Uh, it was a good upbringing. Um, around my sixth grade year, you know, you get out of you get out of Catholic school and you go into junior high, and it was a totally different environment. You meet new friends. Um, some friends that were a little bit older than me. And the first time that I really had anything to do with drugs was, was a joint. It started with the joint and, uh, at a homecoming game, uh, hanging out with the different crowds coming out of St. Anthony's and, you know, uh, started drinking a little, uh, weekend drinking six pack, uh, got into, got into inhalants at an early age. Which uh, I was into inhalants, shipping seventh, eighth grade year, uh, along with alcohol, marijuana. Excuse me. What kind of inhalants? Uh, what kind started of inhalants with, started with gasoline. Uh, I was watching the Friday night. I was watching Twenty Twenty as an episode Barbara Walters had, and it, she gave the warning to the moms and dads: if you have any, if you have any children. You know, you might want to get them out of the room. Well, my mom and dad are already sleeping. I'm sitting there watching 2020, and she says to get kids out of the room. So it just brought me that much closer to what she's about to say. And she started talking about inhalants killing the youth of America. And I thought, wow, what, what's that about? And it, and it talked about being able to get high off of, off of huffing gas or, you know, Lysol or uh, paint and I asked some friends about it and we started, we experimented with it and we were hooked. No way. And you were already smoking some weed, drinking, and then you kind of progressed into this and, uh, okay, uh -huh. let's keep on going, bro. Let's keep on oh, going. Tell me, yeah, tell me more. Like I said, it was, it started off with, with doing that and a six pack, six pack in a joint and got into the high school years and, um, uh, I got into track. Uh, I was active in school. 
church, I was still active in church because my mom, you know, if you're going to go out on Saturday, you're going to go to confession before you go out and you're going to, you're going to go to church on Sunday, which like I said, I had a very good upbringing. The other side of me with my friends, I was, I was already getting out and starting to party and come home a little bit late and getting busted drinking and, and, um, getting grounded. And my ninth grade year, it kind of come to a halt. I, I quit going out uh, for about a year, and I turned I turned it all off. You know, early on in in partying, for me, I could still do that. I could turn it off. I had willpower, as they say. Uh, my sophomore year, I come out mm. and I was right back where I stopped, having no idea what alcoholism was. And you know, at that time, you just don't think of things like that. I I went on drinking through my high school years. Uh, I met my first, my first ex right out of high school. We had a baby together. Uh, I was still drinking and still, still uh, smoking some weed from time to time. Uh, I straightened up for seven years, had a kid the fifth year of straightening up, um, put my family back into a church environment. I got a, local preacher's license. Um, things were going good about seven years into that first relationship. The wheels fell off of it. We separated for a little bit and I went back out and started drinking and smoking and cussing and doing a little bit of cocaine and, um, tried to meth a couple of times. And then I went back to my family and we're together another seven years. And, it just never was the same. Whenever I turned 27 and I picked everything back up, I ran with it for 20 years. I, I, uh, we got divorced and stepped into another relationship and got married and we had five kids together. And it was just a continuous party and raising kids. And it was it was the good, the bad and the ugly of, of them years. It just... uh. Okay, so so for seven years you straightened out. You you and your wife were raising kids and you were going to work and you were just being a normal dad, a normal husband. And then you had some marital problems, so you guys separated for a bit and then you picked up again and then you started going off the rails from there. Yes, sir. It was um it was New Year's. I can't remember what year it was, maybe ninety nine. Most people do a new year's resolution and try to quit everything <laughs> that new year's day i picked everything back up and and i just ran with it for <laughs> like say 20 years uh, so so when you got back together with your wife and you said it was never really the same again you what know, do you mean um, if you're having trouble with alcohol and you're really not aware what alcohol alcoholism is. I look back and when I picked it back up, I just, just like the book says, you can turn it off for 25 years and you go right back to it. You pull out them slippers in that bottle. You're right back at the races. Life never was the same again. So if life was never the same again. Then the relationship never was the same again. My, the relationship I had with my creator wasn't the same and everything from there started to crumble it was valleys you know they, they they speak of 
of of rock bottom and you think of rock bottom being thrown in jail or od or a car wreck you know this here's where where it this was my rock bottom for me rock bottom really started back in 1999 where i picked back up and it's just the hills it's just it's just valleys and hills and um some good like i said the good the bad and the ugly all mixed up in 20 years from 27 to 47 when you were with your wife and family during the good seven years that you were with them, you had mentioned that you picked up a preacher's license. Were you preaching in those seven years um, while you were with your family? I'd, I'd preach on occasions, not not real often. Uh, I had a Bible. I had I had a Bible class, you know, Sunday school class, um, with men's groups in town. You know, I was I was active with with men's groups going to. Um, going to retreats and, you know, just, just trying to be the best dad that I could, that, that I could be to, to my kids. Uh, mm -hmm. I had a relationship. I had a relationship. During those years. Looking back again, you look back, you do an inventory. It's just not an inventory of when you decided to do that inventory. For me, you do a lifelong inventory because you have to make the amends, see where you messed up. And, uh, it all started back back then. Do you remember feeling restless, irritable, and discontented during the last couple of years of your marriage before you picked up, I should yeah, say? Yeah, there was there was moments. There was moments, you know, whenever you whenever you quit for the wrong reasons yeah. and you and you try to live right in in a legalistic way. Those old defects that you have, they're still there, and they're, and you haven't done anything with them. All you've done is put a Band-Aid over it. So, yes, the restless and irritable and discontent, it does, it, it is still there. So is it safe for me to say that when you met your wife and had your kids and you had straightened out and you went straight, you were quitting for the wrong reasons and you were still kind of in the back of your mind thinking about drinking? Yeah. Yeah, like you you do you quit. You quit because you want to be a good dad or you want to be a good husband. But you really haven't quit for the right reasons but because it's not for you. It's to benefit the people around you, but you you learn later on in recovery the purpose for quitting. And that's to gain that connection mm. with, with with God. So you hadn't conceded to your innermost self. You would just quit based on the circumstances. And then once you got the opening, which was seven years in, you guys had split up for a bit. It was fucking, oh, yeah. it was go time now, right? Yeah, it just, it just like, like the light switch went back on. So during the go time. And so how long were you guys split uh, we up for? Split up, but it was, wasn't real long, like maybe, like maybe 90 days. We split up and... And then you got back together, and then it was never the same because now you you had set off the allergy and you were on the spree, and uh, and how did your relationship go with your wife and your children as you tried to stay together? Was there a lot of like, was there a lot of sneakiness and dishonesty, or how did That's, it I gonna, progress? I was going to say, you know, you, you sugarcoat a lot. You know, I, you sugarcoat a lot. You um. 
you scheme, you hide things, uh, you're not as open, um, you become a closet drinker, you become a closet weed smoker. It wasn't all the time at first, but it gradually, it gradually gets worse. So you're kind of reminding me a little bit of like my marriage when I was getting pretty sick. I had a great wife, uh, had kids, but then I was using and I was keeping it secret. But what I started doing was I started pulling away. I started not engaging. I started not being open. I started to like sleep more on my side of the bed. And I, what I can look back at it and go, I started isolating. And I sometimes, honestly, Jimmy, I would start fights um, just so that she was mad at me that I could separate myself because she was mad at me and then I could go use. But in the moments, if you were to ask me in those moments, did I do it on purpose? I would say no. But looking back at it, my subconscious was really trying to get me alone yeah. so that I could just use. And uh, I actually started causing a lot of destructive behavior in our relationship. And she didn't know what was going on because I wasn't honest. I wasn't vulnerable. Right. And and so, like, I had a really big part in destroying yeah. that marriage. I look, I look back and what you speak of is I just considered, you know, the restless and irritable discontent of the disease before I knew it was a disease. The the selfishness of it, you know, the starting fights to, to get your way. Um, when it comes to my kids, I've always had a good relationship with my kids, but alcohol behind the scenes was already getting in the way you know you i started off coaching my kids and in, in sports and i was and i was a good coach the the coach i was always there and then towards the end of it man like th this is like a nine year nine ten year process wherever you're having to chew gum before you show up to a little league game because you smell like beer to where you're showing up to the game to coach a game and you're drunk it's just it, it's maddening what what this disease would do to you. You can't you can't just turn it off after a while. And did you think other people were noticing that it was getting worse? Maybe uh, a lot of times people they see what's going on, but they just rather they just rather look away. I had some good friends that would uh, would tell me, "Hey, buddy, you know, better put some gum in your mouth." You, smell like you just drank a six pack and you're here trying to coach <laughs> you know so it was a pretty embarrassing moment you know? so you got yeah you know and, and i relate to that so wholeheartedly and you know it created a lot yeah. of guilt and shame in us too as as we look back later in our lives right but as you're kind of back with your wife, how many years did you guys stay together for before it got burned uh, We were down? together 14 years total. Because it was that seven years, that first seven years where, where I walked out and the second seven, it just, just never was, never was the same. I'd, I wasn't the same person I was whenever I sobered up. Sobering up was good. I'm not saying it wasn't. It just, it just wasn't. What wasn't the right way? Okay, and so how did how did all this hiding your drinking affect your job and your employment? Like, I think you had worked at the same place for quite some time, yeah, did I, you not? I started off at a at a feedlot here in Delhart, and I worked there for four years. 
And, you know, it was good. And then I went to another job. And when I started drinking, uh, again, you kind of like taking it back to junior high and going into high school. I went, I had one job and then I stepped into the second job and I had a different atmosphere of people that I was working with. Um, life throws things at you and you, and you've quit, you've quit drinking, you've quit smoking and you're thrown into a different environment and that just kind of helped for it to take off again. You know, you, you decide, well, I'm going to drink one beer. I'll take one hit. And it just snowballed from there. Were you going to I, work I was going to work high. Um, later on, you know, I'd wait till three o'clock and go get me a quarter or six pack and stay late at work drinking. Come home, run to the fridge and grab a beer out of the fridge. That way nobody would know that you'd been drinking. You know, hey, I just showed up from work. I'd. I'm just, I'm just ready for a beer, but really, you've already drank a 12-pack before you get home. You, you hide it, you know, the shame of it. Mm-hmm. And just functioning, like, we can't even function almost without it, right? And, like, it's, it's worse to be sober than it is to, to be drunk, and that's what we need. We need that escape. We need that relief, and that's the powerlessness when did you really understand that, you know, I knew you weren't, I know you weren't in the program, but was there any time through like these years where you're like, fuck, I really need to get some help or like, I'm in trouble here or I can't stop. Was there any thoughts that you had and, and said, look, I got to do something here. Um, hangover, hangover mornings would do that to me. You wake up with the real bad hanger and you think, man, I'm never doing this again. And then you'd shake off that hangover and you'd be back to it in two, three days. And then it started getting to the point where, okay, well, I'm just going to drink on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And you can have that under control for a little bit. And then it, it bleeds over into Sunday to watch football, maybe a court. And then somewhere along the line, it just got out of control. Every day was a day. And as whenever I really felt something was the matter, it was probably about 10 years ago you know I, I lost my mom and the year before I lost my mom the uh, drinking had become the everyday with friends or family and then what they didn't see me drinking I was drinking behind the scenes you know hide it I a closet drinker as they say you know I started drinking every day and uh, I'd already went to a new job by then. I went to that job sober. When, whenever I got my third job that I'm at now, I was three months sober when I showed up. I was five months so, sober when I showed up. And three months into that job, again, that, that change of environment. Uh, seeing the guys at the table when they had th two 30-packs on the welding table, and I'm sitting over there running my machine thinking, Dan, why wasn't I invited? <laughs> you know, and uh, eventually you just cave. Uh, <laughs> put my butt up on an Applebee's in Amarillo, Texas, and decided I'm going to drink one beer. And before knowing anything of the phenomenon of craving, I told myself I'm going to drink one beer and I ordered the big beer, the, the two, you know, the, the big schooner. And I drank it, and I drank another, and I drank another one, and my ex-wife, my second ex-wife, told me, you know what, baby, it's time for us to go. 
and I didn't want to go. It, you know, it had me already after eight months of not drinking, it had me again. And I drank like that, man. I think I drank like that for almost eight years. I got home from Amarillo and I, and there's a, there's a barbecue place and a liquor store to get to my house. And I told myself, just turn and go home. And my car just went straight to the liquor store. It seemed like picked me up a six pack of Budweiser, the, the same, the same demon that I laid down eight months earlier. I picked that same six pack up and I drank like that until August of 2017. Okay. Well take us to that last six months of your drinking and how, how did it degress so bad? Then how did you find a solution? Really, it was, it was the last eight months, January of 2017. I had separated. I, um, my drinking was a big issue before separation. Even for years, my drinking was, my drinking was, was a big issue. Uh, it ruins relationship. It ruins families. It ruins jobs. It ruins friends. Everything that you touched went to trash. And uh, the last eight months, man, I was weighing 220. I got home and didn't have nobody to answer to. So I'd get me an 18-pack, and I'd come home, and I'd drink for the enjoyment of it. And uh, about two months into it, because I was already drinking at work, I'd wake up in the morning and start drinking, 3.30 in the morning. And uh, I'd go to work, and I was drinking. And about two months into that, I got busted at work with a breathalyzer test, and Failed my first breathalyzer test. And I already knew I had troubles. I just didn't know what alcoholism was, to be honest with you. I knew I had trouble with alcohol. And I failed that first breathalyzer test, and I kind of straightened up a little bit. Um, June come around, I got divorced, and I told myself, I still, I still thought I could run on willpower, so I put a date. When I get divorced, I'll straighten up and I'll start going to the gym. I got divorced. I straightened up for a little bit, and then I started just drinking maybe a six-pack a night and going to the gym. And I got comfortable, and I got busted again drinking at work. And I thought for sure that was going to be the end of my job. And I remember sitting on the back porch drinking coffee and smoking a cigarette and thinking, man, you really need to get to a rehab, Jimmy. You've been saying this for years now. What are you going to do? And uh, my boss called me up and he said, hey, man, where are you at? And I said, well, I'm here at work. I'm trying to think of what I need to do to get my 401k. I need, I'm going to go ahead and go into a rehab. I said, no, buddy, man, I need you to work. I need you to get to work. And like I said, we don't know what alcoholism is. We think we're just drinkers. And he told me, man, now all I asked, Jimmy, just get me through the busy season. Mm -hmm. Just get me to September. And when you get to September, we'll go get you help. And... uh I thought, cool. <laughs> no, I still have my job. So what I do, I, I started drinking again. I, I never quit, but I started, I, I was celebrating because I had a second chance. I was, I was thinking, well, my daughter's pregnant. <laughs> and this is the foolishness of it. My daughter's pregnant. Here we are, June. I'll drink. My daughter will have the baby. I'll get my boss through the busy season, come September and October. Well, the Cowboy game is going to be in September, October. So maybe in November, I'll get to rehab. And it just didn't happen like that. I ended up wrecking my car on the railroad tracks. Uh, the bottom had completely fallen off on life by that time. It goes from, it goes from drinking 
and being happy in your backyard to just the restless and irritable and discontent of having to be at work and be sober to coming home and just wanting to be alone and drinking. And then it went real quick from just being alone and drinking to just isolating. You don't even want to have a light on in your house. Um, from isolation to a serious depression and from a serious depression to eventually hanging a belt up in the closet and just wanting to end it. And what kept me at that, at that moment was knowing I had a son that was going to college that was going to make something of himself, knowing that I had a daughter that was seven, eight months pregnant at the time. And I was going to mess out on all this if I didn't get my head out of my ass. So I went like that for another, for a couple more months. And I was in the backyard sitting down and it was like the lowest of the moments, but it was also the highlight of the moment when I, when I realized I had a can of Keystone in my hand. I looked at it. What am I going to do with you? I can't live with you anymore, but I can't live without you. And I thought, mm. you know, Jimmy, you have friends, you have family that really love and care for you, but nobody is going to save you from this. Nobody can help you quit drinking. Nobody can help. Nobody can make you stop this time. And at that moment and for that first year, I thought you have to save yourself from yourself. And that's really the moment where the clarity come in and I call it a moment of surrender that day when I realized quit talking about, about it, do it, throw all your marbles into this and go to rehab. I had my last drunk on August 7th. My son come pick me up here in Dalhart. Uh, my, my daughter had me in house arrest for um, two weeks in Amarillo. She had me down to to 224s in the morning, 224s at noon, and 224s about 7 o'clock at night. And they let me come home to get my clothes to go to rehab, and I had my last drunk. My son come pick me up, took me back to Amarillo, and uh, I tried to get my last two beers before we went to Lubbock, and my daughter hit the door, the lock on the door, and said, no, Dad, you're done. I'll get the gas. You just sit here. And I passed out an hour and a half to Lubbock and ended up at Dovetree, a rehab Walked up the stores, walked up the steps drunk with my daughter, eight months pregnant, a four-year-old granddaughter, my son, and at the time, my daughter's boyfriend. And I considered that in that moment, you know, the, the, the early on, I considered that my, my step one. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol that my life had become unmanageable. And I walked in there with a thousand bucks and I handed it to a man and he told me, boy, Jimmy, I told you you could drink, but you're drunk. <laughs> you have to go to detox. So I went to detox. And when I had entered detox, I remember the first looking back again, the first. The first moment that I saw service work. Was a was a girl there. She worked there and I looked down and she had my she had my suitcase opened up. And she was folding my clothes, putting my socks together and folding my underwear and my shirts and my pajamas. And I was wondering, what in the hell was she doing this for? I, I got checked in. They did my blood pressure. And like I said, I was 220 in January. I had I had detox at 170. It looked like I was dying of AIDS or cancer. Wow. But when I hit detox that night, I finally started sobering up. 
on on a old Schmuck Myers chocolate double chocolate muffins and frosted flake cereal and marble reds. And I stepped out because they had a little 12 by 12 with a six foot fence around it. I stepped out and for the first time in years, I felt safe. Not knowing that I needed to feel safe, but but realizing that's what I was feeling inside. I was like, wow, Jimmy, you finally made it somewhere to where you can breathe. And it just it, it started there and it hasn't ended. People speak of a spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening. You Holy think of that as being a one moment thing. It's not a one moment thing. That spiritual awakening just keeps on happening. No. Wow, that's pretty powerful, Ben. And uh, even like all of that is so powerful. But I just got a feeling like when you were sitting there and you're like, you know what? I'm safe. I'm okay. I'm yeah. I'm right where I need to be. And you know, you've pretty much lost everything. You know, luckily you have this family oh, that man. just cares so much about you. And and you know, without them, who knows what you would have done, right? So luckily you have those those unconditional loving family members that got you there and and that sense of relief and like just knowing okay this is where i'm supposed to be and i think everything's gonna be okay as long as i stay here and i do what i'm supposed to do and then it began right and so what did what did they teach you in treatment um i spent four or five days in detox and i finally went i finally went to to the rehab and and i told myself when i was in detox you have to do this 100%, Jimmy. You have to do this 100%. And I showed up I showed up to to Dove Tree that morning and my first my first class, I guess if you want to call it a class, my first hour was just over gratitude. This lady named Deb sat us in a big circle and uh she went around and she told us I want y'all to be grateful for three things. And honestly, I didn't even know what the word grateful meant. I heard other people what they were grateful for, and I just went along with it. Well, I'm grateful for the air. Well, I'm grateful for for the sun, and I just went along with it like that. And uh, went to that class, and I started learning. But I learned about gratefulness in them 28 days. My second class was meditation, <coughs> and I sat out on the picnic table, and I saw people walking into the gym for this meditation class. And I thought, you know what? I ain't doing meditation. That, that just sounds. That just sounds. I don't know. That just sounds like for girls. And I had a girl come up to me and she asked me, Hey, you ain't going to come in? And I said, No, nah. I said, I ain't going to try the meditation. And she said, All right, well, you know, just seeing if you're going to go. And it hit me right then. You know what, dude? You said you're going to do this 100%. And here you are, the second hour in here, and you're already copping out. So I went to meditation, and that's that's been one of my favorite things about recovery now. That's that's an everyday deal that I do is meditate, prayer, meditation. That's step 11 before I knew what step 11 was. I went to a couple other classes. I met my counselor. My counselor asked me, what are you what are you what are you fearful of? And at the time, I'm not scared of anything. Not knowing that fear is what drives all this. Selfishness is what drives the fear. I learned later on. Went to another class and uh, we had one-on-one with the counselor and he told me you know what i think's your problem dude is shame shame's what has you here and alcohol just drove you here 
So I learned that about myself early on in recovery and got to lunch, went to lunch and met some people and started feeling pretty good, feeling sober. And, you know, I realized I wasn't the only one like this. Um, we had a <coughs> we had a class right after and it said Michi. And I thought it was an acronym because I was starting to learn very on in recovery that the acronyms are are all over in recovery. And uh, I thought, what's Michi stand for? And this guy told me, just give it a minute, you'll find out. And there's one guy, he's 26 years old at the time with his hat on backwards. He come in there and he slammed a big book on the table. And he told me, you come to my class, you don't come without it. You don't come late and you don't come without this book. And that's how I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous is, is through him. <laughs> uh, I'm still good friends with him. I, 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 and he just, he has saved me. In so many ways, or show me the way, not in a loving way, but in the way I needed to know. But he's the one that opened up the book to me every day. <clears throat> Started with the powerlessness of, of this of this disease and the unmanageability and the doctor's opinion. You know, it, it was just it was crazy. The man that wouldn't take my money and sent me to detox. <clears throat> his name's Murray and. My daughter and my son, when they first started reaching out for somewhere for me to go, they talked to Murray. And Murray was the Murray was the man that did the doctor's opinion every Wednesday. So uh that's really how how recovery started for me was in was in them thirty or in them twenty-eight days. I went from I went from step step one to step when eight. you said that, John And it's not a race, but when you when you said that gentleman, he did he care more about your life than your feelings? Oh, he, was he, he a bit hard that. on you? It's exactly what he told me, dude. I don't care about your fucking feelings. I care about your life. He's the one that told me after I lost a friend. You know, my first year, three hundred and sixty sixth day, I lost a a good friend to suicide, and I went to one of his meetings, and uh, I was looking for looking at it. I was looking for sympathy. The self-pity, you know, why couldn't I save him kind of attitude, not knowing that's what it was. And him, he had 10 years of recovery under him. And he told me, man, you want to know about self-love? Open up to when we retire at night. Open up to on awakening. And he gave me, uh, he told me about, about loss and about grief. But he told me, dude, go home and look in the mirror, man. You ain't, you ain't God, Jimmy. You know, it was, it was things like that, that kind of, it sounds rude, but it's, it's what opened my eyes up to. I'm not God. People are going to die. He told me early on in, in, in the basement in, in, in Dove Tree, look around, man, there ain't going to be a whole lot of y'all make it. And I thought he was talking about, you know, recovery. He told me, no, dude, there's going to be four or five of y'all die within the first year. And I'll be damned. He was straight. I, I saw. I went to three or four funerals that first year, just from members of of Dove Tree that I went. I was there in the month of August with. But uh, I st I still try to talk to him, you know, on occasion. He uh, he has his own life. He left Dove Tree and he works at a other at a other treatment treatment place there in Lubbock. So he was just real, eh? He he wasn't bullshitting about anything. He was telling you the hard facts and. And uh, he he really did care more about your life than your feelings and everybody else. And 
He'd been around so long. He'd been collecting the data so long. He knows what's going to happen to the other members of this room if you don't dig in, like, with the desperation of a drowning man, right? And and we need those guys. I need those kind of guys, too. The same, bro. I need the same two guys that helped him are the same two guys that helped me. You don't realize this when you step in until you step away from it. And you realize, like I say, Murray and my daughter and Aaron, my son, they met on the phone and they got a relationship going like a month before I hit Dove Tree. Murray was Michi's sponsor. I didn't know any of that. My my counselor was named Mark. He was good friends with Michi whenever Michi went to Dove Tree. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like... Um, like a line of, of sponsorships. You know, you hear people talk about, you know, about sponsorship and you got to know your lineage. <coughs> I guess if there's such, such a thing as a lineage to me, that's, that's where really where it started was my, was my daughter and my son meeting Murray. And I, I get tearful because that's how important it is to me is to get get a story across to you that it starts with the ones that have been there the longest the ones that don't go away you know they they could they could have went away and just started living their life and forgot all about aa about alcoholism but but they don't they're they're troopers they're lifers mhm wow so you get into the step 1 you start learning about the malady the obsession and the allergy and your brain is just going bing 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 holy shit that's me that's me that's me and getting into the step two and the step three and the step four give us some takes on those um, steps for you the dates not the dates but the your like awakenings as you're going through the material what did these steps mean to you at that time and maybe what do they mean to you um, today five the step years one at, at that time like I, like i was saying the step one the minute i was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable i looked at it then as me actually going up the steps to get to where murray's office was drunk off my ass my life was unmanageable because my 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 son had to come get me out of the house and walk me up the hallway and he told me then, Dad, we're going to take this step by step before I knew anything of 12 steps that I was going to step into. And that really was my, my first step. It, it's evolved since then. Um, my step two mm-hmm. um, came to believe that there is a power greater than me to restore me to my sanity. It was, um, I just thought of a God. I really didn't think of me being insane. Until again, you start doing the inventory, you start looking back at your life, man. You did some crazy shit, Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> step three, you know, the, decided to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him. It basically sounded like an altar call to me, so I took it as an altar call. Being raised Christian and being a Christian all my life, I looked at it as as a as an altar call. What I found cool about it was it was a God of my understanding, which all through my life, my God was through family tradition. I'm not taking nothing away from family tradition, but 
that's where my God was. It was it was steeped in Catholicism. And when I got out of Catholicism, it was steeped in non-denomination. And that's how I raised my family. And But when I got to that point of life, I got to my understanding, okay, if I'm insane, I'm powerless, my life's unmanageable, what kind of God is this? And then he just started forming himself to me and he evolves every day. The spirit, spiritual awakening doesn't just go to sleep in me, I don't think. But you get to that step four, and Michi, again, he told me, dude, a lot of people just stop right there, man. They don't want to get to that step four. Because, let me back up, because at step three, it says decision. All you've done there is make a decision. When you get to that step four, that's whenever you start putting your pen to the paper. And you're starting to commit to something. You're starting to commit to that change. Okay, well, you know, where, where was I wrong? Who was I mad at? Why was I mad? What did it affect? And you stop there. And if you read the big book, it doesn't have a step, a column four, but you read further on and it talks about you put pen to paper. So that step four really was the eye opener to me. Okay, dude, you was mad. Who are you mad at? Why were you mad? What did it affect? And step four, where are you to blame? That's where you hold yourself accountable and, and you have at the time a part-time sponsor or somebody else in, in rehab that kind of <clears throat> kind of shows you the ropes. And I started writing down my, my inventory. You know, I had I had I had my, my kids I needed to make amends to. At, at first I thought it was just gonna be a sorry. Uh, I had two exes I needed to make amends to. I had friends and other families I had to make amends to. I had my boss I had to make amends to. I kept it, I say, make amends to all. I made amends to the biggest amends that I felt were right there. You know, the 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 big stuff is what I wanted to take care of. So that's what I took care of. And when I got out of rehab, I started expanding on my step four. I got to my step five and I did my step five a couple of times in rehab. I did it with the, with the fellow. He was uh, 20 years old and he had been to rehab three times. So he knew the steps. He didn't have them. He knew them, but he didn't live them. But he's the one I, I shared my first fifth, my fifth step with. Uh, I shared some of my fifth step with uh, Michael. He was a, he was a, he was a guy that would go in to rehab just to help people along with their fourth and fifth step. Uh, the step six and step seven, man, that's defects, defects of character and shortcomings. Um, you just live those out every day. You know, you, you, you pray and you, uh, I don't think you ever, you don't ever graduate from this. I got to my step eight and I started writing. I took my inventory and I looked at my inventory and I started writing a list of, the people I needed to reach out to and I got out of rehab and uh, uh, I started doing my amends. Uh, and it, like I say, it's more than, it's more than a sorry. They've already heard sorry from you plenty of times. What they want to really see is, is change in your behavior. So it's, it, some people call it a living amends. I just call it, it's a way of life, you know, uh, you set goals with, uh, I, I've set goals with my amends, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. They're really not the word sorry, but I regret showing up to my granddaughter's fourth birthday at Chuck E. Cheese drunk off my ass and them having to carry me out. 
and hopefully she doesn't remember any of that. But my my amends to her is to show up to her graduation sober. And for all these times, for her to be able to say, I've never seen my grandpa drunk. I've never even seen my grandpa drink. I have three grandkids that are basically the same amends. Um, my two exes, you know, just to be a better person. Um, I'm, I still have a relationship with, with my three stepkids. Um, I can be, I can be friends with both my exes and it's not like an everyday deal or anything, but not by far. I'm just saying you can be civil with each other. <clears throat> um, my boss told me, dude, just stay how you are. You know, he apologized for me for, for me starting to drink up and do that. It wasn't your fault. You know, uh, you just didn't understand, <laughs> you know, uh, it's one of the best relationships I have now is with my boss. We, uh, we spend time during the summer. We'll go mm -hmm. fishing. We caught 82 fish this last, you know, last week, the year before we caught, I don't know how many fish we've caught together. We get out there and we just chill, you know, that's where I find my peace and my serenity. Uh, I made amends to my, to my families, uh, to, to my brothers and sisters, it just it just goes on and on, you know. That that's where that, that's where those steps have gotten me to today. Uh, the, the step ten. So, I I want to ask you something, and then I'd like to hear about the last three steps: ten, eleven, and twelve. But when you look back at like going to church and you know being a preacher to some degree and and like the connection that you had with God, the connection you had with God back then, and then the connection that you obtained with God through the steps, is there a big difference in the feeling? Can you describe to me like if there is a difference and how there is a the difference? The difference in from when I when I began the steps, you, you say? No. So years ago, I was at a meeting in a place called Medicine Hat, Alberta. And I was in this meeting and this guy spoke and he, he was in, he was in the program and he said, it was in the basement of a church. And this guy said, he's like, I was the pastor of this church upstairs for 10 years. He says, I talked about God every day. He's like, I never found God until I came downstairs to the room of the fellowship. And he says, my connection with God down here is where it actually happened. And he said, up there for 10 years, he said, I talked oh, about yeah. it, but I didn't feel it. And like that really hit me. So I'm wondering if you had that I can experience. I can go back to step three, that God of my, of my understanding made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. As I understood him, the God upstairs was, was religion. Like I said, it was, uh, it was theology. It was um, it was a debate. It could even be a debate, you know. My God, my God's real. Your God's fake, kind of deal. Whenever it, alcoholism will take you to that point of surrender, and it'll show you humility if you humble yourself. There's a beautiful line in step three: relieve me of the bondage of self. That's what my God does for me. He relieves me of the bondage of self every day. And whenever I get out of hand where that ego comes, comes back because it will, he humbles you. If you're open to it, if you've asked him in the morning to relieve you of the bondage of self, 
trust me, man, he'll he'll tug at you. Hey, hey, buddy, remember what you asked for this morning? <laughs> so he is a different type of God. He's I no longer have a God that I fear. You know, if you don't change your ways, Jimmy, you're going to hell. You know what? My way of life, I don't have time to think of a hell. I have my my moments are upon awakening. I ask God to direct my thinking, to ask him to divorce me of selfishness, of dishonesty and being manipulating because I can be manipulated. So my my relationship has no room for a hell, has no re, has no room for a for a devil. It, it, it's it starts up here with a higher power and the blessings just go trickle down from there. So yeah, my God definitely has changed. It's it, it, understand it or not, but I understand my God. He evolves too, man. Just just when you think you know God, no, he throws he throws he throws a new spin at you. You know, he shows you something different. He shows you somewhere else you can be, dude. where you can be a service. That's what you're there for. It is you're here for service. Yeah, Jimmy. yeah. You know, Jimmy. And as I I I hit a lot of meetings, I help a lot of people, and I. And I tell these guys, I said, the God that we might start out with yeah. is an intellectual God. But I said, as you work these steps and you really <laughs> dig in and you really try to like do what this program is at, do what this program is asking, I say, God will be an experience. And I can't really explain to you what the experience of God is because it's, there's no human words to describe the experience of God. But when you experience that, you'll know and you'll come back to me and you'll say, <laughs> I know what you mean now, because it's not intellectual. Yeah. It's a feeling. Right. And and that's what you're describing. And it's it's hard to explain. Right. But yeah, when you know, I it, find you it know in nature it. a lot. I never was a nature nature kind of guy. You know, the most yeah. nature I got was pitching horseshoes in my backyard. I didn't learn to fish until Mike took me fishing. As a kid, I fished a little bit, but I didn't become a fisherman. And I can say a fisherman until I sobered up and we started fishing. I find I find my relationship at times out there on on the boat headed to the fishing hole or or just being on the dock looking up at the looking up at the star and the and the moon, you know, shining down on the light and you just have them aha moments like, wow man, that's my God did that. My God is that. That's just not a moon. That's mm -hmm. that is my God. Or the sunrise coming up. That that is my God. Right. My God is painting that picture for me right now. That's powerful, right? Yeah, dude. I I even look like I live downtown Calgary, Alberta, which we call Recovery Capital of Canada, Calgary. I'll walk downtown and I'll look at the stone buildings, and I'll even look at the yeah. building and go, "That's my God." My God was in that rock. My God is in the limestone. My God yeah. is in the asphalt. Like. God is everywhere when you're awake to God and you know, God does become everything. Like in that step too, God yes. is either everything or he is nothing. God is the seemingly good in my life and he's the seemingly bad. He's, I get the job. God is, I don't get the job. God is, I get the woman. God is, I don't get the woman. God is my car breaks down. God is my car doesn't break down. Like it's not just the seemingly good things in my life because there's always a lesson from the things that seem bad and some of the worst things that ever happened to me in my life they actually oh, yeah. taught me the most. Right. But I got to be awake and I, and I got to be willing to look at that. And, and yeah, I know that you got to be open to, 
to everything. Even in the bad, you gotta. I mean, you might you might be going through it, but my mind's already okay, dude. Where's where's the good in this? God somewhere in in them. Just uh, it's just way God works. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, go through those last three steps. Uh, how about ten, eleven, and twelve? How do how do you look at those back then, or maybe and today? Back, you know, step ten. They're in in the beginning. I like the step ten was just a just a personal inventory at night you know when you retire at night if you have any anybody to get right with you know you need to get right with them then it took maybe year and a half two years for it to really come to the promises of step 10 where they just kind of hit me you're sober just because that's the miracle of it, dude. God, God did this for you. You know, yes, you did. You did the work, but God is what has you here today. Now, what's going to keep you here today is that spiritual maintenance that it talks about. Uh, I thought spiritual, I thought step 10 was a maintenance step. 11, I thought was maintenance step. I thought 12 was a maintenance step. You, you're told that. I don't know about you, but I've been told those are your maintenance steps, Jimmy. And my and my sponsor told me those are your growth steps. That's where you grow, Jimmy. You know, you look at you look at the promises of step mm-hmm. ten. You know, we will no longer fight anything or anyone. We're not even fighting alcohol anymore. That's the miracle of it. It, it talks about it being a miracle of it. Uh, it. It talks about you know having to having to keep a personal inventory. You know, but that's that's the beginning of that step. The step ten, how it bleeds into your new way of living compared to how you used to live night and day. You know, it it you it bleeds into the step eleven where it talks about, you know, doing God's will, you know, serving God. What's what's he gonna have you do next? You know, prayer meditation. Um the step twelve, you know, where it talks about just okay, this is who you are, man. Who are you going to share it with? You need to take all these principles into all your affairs, and you're going to share. It. And you just, to me, it just becomes part of you. The, the steps people say, and you know, early on, it works if you work it. But maybe you got to work it in the beginning. But if if you're still working it, then it's you know you're not living it. You gotta. It, it just becomes you. It it, it becomes ingrained yeah. in you. This is who you are. Your recovery. Your recovery becomes you. Your recovery is 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 top priority. It doesn't mean that that you're obsessed with recovery. It just it's just who you are now. Trust me, you want me like this, yeah, more than you'd you know, want to see me I, the way I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. You know, I often say to the guys that I work with, I'm like, and people in general, I'm like. You dig into this book and this program for the first one, two, three years, and you make this, you groove this into your life, and it becomes a way of life. Once it becomes a way of life, like it's a game changer. But if you just try to piece this in in those first couple years, a little bit here and a little bit there, it takes so long to get what you and I are talking about. And it's years of frustration and relapse and but I like my big thing is dig in for the first two or three years of this way of life so that it becomes a way of life. And like you said, it's not obsessive. It's just becomes what it is. And 
And it's a beautiful way of life, right? Like, fuck, I, I wouldn't want it any other way. I would never want to go back to how I lived. I don't care about those years. I love my God in my life today. I love being of service. I love meeting people from all over the world who are carrying the message like you. But I did what you did. I dug in for those first yeah. few years and I still dig in. And my life, my life isn't mine anymore. God gave me my chance to run my life on my free will. I look back and yeah. I didn't do a good fucking job of it. And he gifted me that. Now my gift back to my creator is I live my life to the best way that he would want me to. And that's the deal. So I turned it over and fucking it's yours now, God. Where can I serve you? And honestly, through that, I found everything I ever tried to get with the money, with the women, with the <laughs> anger, with the manipulating. I tried to find I tried to find happiness in all those ways, but I realized I found it in these ways. And you know, I, I think it's my job to help others try to find the truth within themselves. And I love a lot of your posts. Like a lot of your posts are very similar to that guy who cared more yeah. about your life than your feelings in that treatment center. And you kind of post some things like that. Like it's your responsibility. Like you got to look inside yourself. You got to fucking put the work in. And I love that about you, right? I think that's what attracted me to you was a lot of those kind of posts that I would see or you supporting those kind of posts. But also the other thing that attracted me to you was how supportive you were of everybody who was coming back or who was taking birthdays or whatever. And, you know, cause, cause I kind of lived the same life and like, I always say uh -huh. water finds its own level and, you know, higher water levels, the fellowship you crave will grow up about you. You're the fellowship I crave, right? You're the fellowship of God and fucking, I'm, I'm really happy that I didn't uh -huh. meet you. You know, um, Something about recovery that it's that it's given me is giving me my family back. I um I love the relationship I have with my kids, you know. We can visit and it's for my part, I visit and I'm around them like it's gonna be the last time I'm gonna see them. Every hug, every every laugh, everything is just means so much more to me than than it did in the past, uh, you know, uh, I have a beautiful mm -hmm. fiance. I, I don't know if I shared that with you last time. And, uh, we're getting married in November. Uh, we've, we've shared, we've shared some good times together and it's, it's just that time for us to, to be happy with each other. And, you know, just, let's just do life together. It's, a uh, to me, to me, it's a blessing of being in recovery. Moment by moment, is to you pray, you, you pray to God, and you pray for what what type of woman you want in your life, and He's He's done everything that I've that I've that I've thought that I've prayed for. I have grandkids, man. I have grandkids out that just put Amazing. a smile on my face every time I think of them or see them. It's have a two-year-old, uh, one's fixing to turn five, the other one's fixing to turn 10 and be able to be a sober grandpa and just be there for them, you know, be be part of their lives. That's that's one of the biggest blessings that I'm living right now. That And you do, you live them. In, in, in recovery, that's, that's the blessings of it. 
Roger, Roger. Okay, buddy. So we're we're gonna wind her down. Um, what a beautiful story. But what I'd like from you, Jimmy, is you know, for the for the addict or alcoholic that out there is still suffering, or somebody that's new in recovery, somebody that's just finding the doors for the first time. What do you have to say? What's your message for somebody new or somebody struggling? Surrender. Um, I've heard people say that surrender starts in step six. Uh, for me, it's it started whenever you get to that point where you just you just don't want to live anymore. You know, instead of surrendering that way, surrender and surrender to a God out there. You might not realize it, but that God's what's getting you through it. I didn't save myself for myself. I thought that's how it was. That was God's grace. And it, it's, it, you know, it takes years to get to that point where, where you look back, wow, dude, you ain't accomplished anything. You're a miracle. That's what, that's what you really are to the one that's still suffering. That's what I have to say is you're a miracle. You just have to find God's grace, find that God's grace mm-hmm. is there for you and then get on with it. And for me, get on with it through the steps. That's what, that, that's what got mm-hmm. me here. Yeah, dude, I hear you 100%. Well, Jimmy, I really thank you for everything you do in the community. I thank you for the willingness to change your own lives and then pack that into the stream of life. And, uh, you know, and I'm I'm really happy that I've met you. So thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for tuning in to the UDR cast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. The viewpoints and the opinions expressed today were solely of the individual sharing them. If you resonated with this episode, please follow us and share this link with anyone that may benefit from it. Please visit us at billward.life to see everything that we have going on. We can recover one person, one family, one community at a time.